Welcome to Beyond the Pink Cloud, the podcast where we talk about moving forward in our lives through recovery and navigating the world with grace, ease, and humor. We've got tools and strategies from the experts to help you live with less stress and increased ease. Let's get into today's episode. So we've got a great episode today with Dr. Neil Barnard, and I think you all will really enjoy what he has to say. And we don't get too much into what's happening with our current situation right now. We do touch on it a little bit in the beginning, but he's got a lot of really great research and information on plant-based diet and why this is healthy. And so if you are stuck at home like a lot of us and you are wanting to try something new, maybe this will be some nice encouragement. And he's certainly a very well-researched and well-published doctor. Uh, So he's got great information. So I hope you all enjoy that. You know, for all of you that are at home, and I know we're in this intense situation right now, and I hope that everyone's doing okay. And if you need some extra support, or if you are looking for some more tools to help regulate your, your own nervous system and to help regulate your own internal sense of being, please come and check out, uh, I'm going to be doing a webinar this Wednesday, 25th. Yeah. The 25th at 5 PM Pacific and 8 PM Eastern standard time. So feel free to reach out to me on any social media platforms and you, you, you can see my links on the bot on the show notes. If you'd like to come to this free class, it's going to focus really on ways that we can support ourselves, ways that we can support our nervous system, and then tools and practices, as well as education on how our system works and how we can prevent ourselves from imploding or exploding into trauma or grief or anxiety through this time right now. And it's not really all about being, you know, super calm or super mellow or pretending things aren't happening that are, but it's being able to remain in our bodies and remain in a place that's tolerable and that even feels good and to actually be the safe space in the world and to start learning some of these regulation tools are incredibly effective in helping ourselves but also all of those around us and people can begin to start regulating to us as we become the more well-regulated presence so this is something you're interested in learning please come and join me for this free class It'll probably be 30 or 40 minutes. Uh, it's a Good morning, and thanks online. for Just joining me for another episode of Beyond the Pink Wednesday. Cloud. This is your host, Dr. Alice Kirby. Please enjoy this and with me today, I'm delighted that we have with us Dr. Neil Barnard. He is the president of the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine, founder to the Barnard Medical Center, and a fellow of the American College of Cardiology. He's also a published author with over, I believe, 19 books. And his most recent book is entitled Your Body in Balance, The New Science of Food, hormones, and health. Uh, Thanks for joining me today, Dr. Barnard. Great to be with you today. I appreciate you taking the time. And um, so we're right now in the middle of this COVID-19. And so I'd love to just hear your take on what's happening and what's going on over there in DC. Um, Anything you'd like to share on the subject, I'm sure would be appreciated. And I'm just curious what what your take on things is right now. Um, Yeah, I'm our uh, take on it is pretty much the same as everyone else's, which is this, this is a threat. Um, it's a huge threat. And uh, the encouraging part is that in China, um, it welled up around New Year's, uh, just before New Year's, and seems to be, we think, maybe starting to scale down now. And if that's the case, that suggests that January, February, March, uh, maybe something like a three-month time frame might be what, it's, what it is. Um, however, 
it's, it's hard to know if that's going to be the time frame elsewhere. We're seeing uh, disasters now in Italy and uh, Spain and France. Um, here in the U.S., we're behind um, simply because of geographic reasons. It's taking its time getting here, but it's certainly here. Um, so our piece of this is the nutrition side. And that might be a little surprising, but I might say a couple things about that. Um, the people who are at most risk are, as you know, people over 60, but also people with uh, cardiovascular disease or respiratory disease. And for some reason, at particular risk, are people with hypertension mm. or people with diabetes. And the question is, why would that be? And a surprising answer comes from, um, well, maybe not so surprising is the fact that hypertension can damage the blood vessels and it, it can assault the heart um, and can lead to, and diabetes can do the same. But another piece of this is that the COVID-19 virus enters the body through certain enzymes that are on the surface of lung cells and heart cells. And it's called angiotensin converting enzymes, ACE. Um, and uh, that's a big issue for people who have hypertension because they go to the pharmacy and their pill is called an ACE inhibitor. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it causes this enzyme, a certain, a certain enzyme to be expressed more. And a little spike on the surface of the virus attaches to this enzyme and it's believed to enter the body that way. So that's led to a lot of speculation. We don't know if it's true, but people have said, okay, if I'm taking that drug, I'm gonna be at more risk. And so scientists are debating it. There's really no clear evidence one way or the other. But what it comes down to this, it comes down to really is this. Um, we need to use the safest ways that we can to tackle up blood pressure and to tackle diabetes. You can't make your age go down, but you can make your blood pressure go down. Uh, you can make your diabetes go down a bit too. And we've been doing research on all of those for quite a number of years. And um, without going too far into this, uh, vegetables and fruits have potassium in them that's blood, that lowers your blood pressure. Cheese has sodium in it, which makes your blood pressure go up. So skip the cheese, eat the vegetables and fruits. Um, your diabetes gets under better control the more your diet is based on plants, vegetables and fruits and grains and beans. Um, and the more it's meaty and fatty, um, the more your diabetes is gonna be out of control. So we've written a lot on all of those things. So I would definitely plug in a plant-based diet and it happens, luckily, to be rich in certain things that appear to be immune boosters in many research studies. I'm talking about the antioxidants, mm. the beta carotene that makes a carrot orange, or the lycopene that makes a tomato red, or the anthocyanins that, makes, uh, that, makes, uh, that make grapes and blueberries their dark bluish color. Um, those are antioxidants, and we believe that if our diet is richer in those, it will do better. So. Um, those are all part of it. Maybe, maybe one last thing. Don't stay up watching the news. Go to yeah. sleep. <laughs> 100% or maybe just don't watch the news. Give um, yourself five to 10 minutes a day with it. Yeah. And, and also go to sleep. Um, yeah. Sleep is, if you don't sleep, you're dragged out, not only emotionally, but also physically. Um, and so if, and also when you're asleep, you can't reach for a donut. Mm. Um, so it's a good idea to, to my own rule is 10 o'clock. It doesn't matter how great the TV show is or how wonderful my book is or how many emails I'm expecting, turn out the light, go to sleep. And there are some tricks that I use to, to help with sleep. 
Um, but um, even if you wake up early, you'll find that you're on a better emotional keel. And here's the trick. If you are not tired out and ragged out and dragged out, you have a little more strength or a little more resilience. If, if you're tired, you'll do anything just to get through the day, whether that's eat bad food or smoke or drink or abuse your body. If you are tired, you're going to let those things happen to yourself. If you're a little bit better rested, you've got just a little more strength against all our all the assaults of the day. Absolutely. It gives you a bit more reserve in your emotional and your neurophysiological tank as well. I think you can, it, exactly. you're, just, you're better equipped to handle <laughs> things as they come. Uh, and I know your, your research has involved a lot with diabetes and you've actually been able to reverse cases of diabetes, correct? I know you mentioned that in the yeah. talk where, where I saw you, that's something that your work has been able to do I'd say quite frequently. Is that appropriate to say? Uh, it's something that we thought was impossible when I was right. in medical school. We, we used to say, once you have diabetes, you'll always have diabetes. And, and then we started to see people. Um, and, and Frank, I, I have to say that that was a pretty good prognosis mm -hmm. if people followed the advice that they were getting up at that time. But, but we started using more aggressive diets. Uh, 2003, the NIH funded us to test vegan diets. And not just vegan, but vegan, very low fat. Um, healthy foods, vegetables and fruits and beans and grains. Um, but it wasn't low carb at all. It had lots of, lots of natural healthy starches and natural fruit sugars and you know, whatever. But, but we started to see diabetes going away. And that was mind blowing. But now um, I have to say that if a person does this diet, it's gonna help them at any stage. But if they do it particularly early, fairly early after diagnosis, within the first year or two, mm -hmm. they're likely, their ability to get the disease to just go away is, is really quite high. If you've had diabetes for 20, 30 years, it may not go away. Um, very unlikely to go away, but, but, but you'll be able to almost certainly reduce your medication use, uh, greatly reduce the risk of complications. So it, it's a good thing no matter what. Absolutely. Do you, I know you've been working hard on publishing research and, <clears throat> excuse me, and books on this topic. Do you feel like this is becoming normalized at all within the, like the biomedical system? Oh, yes. Um, uh, vegan diets are, are now an accepted <laughs> modality for people with type 2 diabetes. Um, our research was, you know, it's obviously peer-reviewed, but it was funded by the, the National Institutes of Health, which mm -hmm. is, I mean, it's the premier <laughs> research the institute in the universe. Um, and, <laughs> universe. and when we... Um, when we got our first results, they were published by the American Diabetes Association um, in its journal called Diabetes Care, which is the one that all the endocrinologists read. Mm -hmm. um, so, um, yeah, I mean, it's out there. But, but I have to say there's a lot of noise out there, too. Mm -hmm. um, so don't eat bread and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So it's, it's always challenging to be able to get a really good approach forward. But, but uh, you don't have to look very far to see, frankly, the world is going vegan. Um, many, many, many people are, are doing this. And I don't just mean the Joaquin Phoenixes of the world who are doing it at the, the Oscars, but, uh, or so, uh, athletes. I mean, yes, they're doing it, but, but doctors are embracing this as well. So that's a good thing. It's definitely a good thing. How, are you vegan? I imagine that you are, yeah? I follow a vegan diet now. I have to say I was not raised that way. <laughs> <at> <laughs> I was going to ask how long you'd been a practicing a vegan or a plant-based diet. Yeah, oh, no, a long time now, but I, would, I, would, I grew up in North Dakota. Okay. Um, and so my whole extended family raised cattle. Um, so, and I, well, I hate to tell you this, but I had a shotgun uh, and I killed more than my share of animals um, as a child with my dad. And we did the 
foolish macho things that people do. I had a job at McDonald's and I have driven personally driven cattle to slaughter. Mm -hmm. Um, none of which I would do anymore. Um, but, um, but anyway, it's, it's never too late to change your own diet. I think that's good advice. I work frequently with the, the geriatric population, many of whom have diabetes or on these multiple medications and trying to intersperse this conversation in of like, hey, can we make some small dietary changes? I asked a patient the other day when she was like, get me my, get me my milk. And I was like, oh, do you use the hormone-free milk? And she's like, it's just milk. And I think it was two days after I'd seen your talk. So I, I was really hyped up on, on the dairy industry. And But with some people, I think it is you have to use this very titrated approach of, can we make these, can we make a small change really no matter what the age I think, because it's always going to be beneficial of, can we just intersperse more leafy green vegetables into your diet? Can we start here? Um, yeah, I think, I think that's great. And any change that a person makes is super. We do have a method that we've used here to try to accelerate it, mm. um, which it's two steps. Um, and, and first of all, this is predicated on a person wanting to, Sure. Um, so let's say, person, thing, I think. Um, and the people who want to, that, that we see are people who are sick of being overweight. Um, they say, I just don't feel right. And I have done, they, they will say, I've done Atkins. I did South Beach. I did Jenny Craig. I did Nutrisystem. I did keto. I did paleo. I did all these things and it's not working for me. I'm sick of it. Um, or a person who has diabetes and is really worried because they've seen what's happened to their family members who had diabetes, you know, their visual loss or, somebody had an amputation and, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, these are motivated people um, or a young woman who has a diagnosis of breast cancer and she thinks, well, what if my disease comes back? I, I was treated, but this could come back. Um, or, I mean, th there are many, many examples of this. Um, or as maybe hopefully we'll talk about today, uh, women with menstrual cramps or endometriosis or hormone related issues, they are strongly motivated to make a diet change. So anyway, here's, how, here's what we do. We break it into two steps. And the whole process takes only four weeks. The first week, that's the first step, is you take seven days to identify foods that you would like. That's the whole deal. You, you don't throw out anything else, but you think, okay, um, for breakfast, I guess oatmeal is vegan, but um, I haven't made it since I was a kid. So now's your week to try it mm -hmm. and top it with cinnamon raisins or, or I have um, corn flakes with milk every morning. Is almond milk any good? I don't know. You got a week. Try it. Um, every night I have dinner at an Italian place and they give me my uh, spaghetti with a, a, a meat sauce. I, is the tomato sauce any good? If they top it with artichoke hearts and grilled mushrooms, would that be nice? I don't know. Try it. Mm. Or I meet my friends at the sushi bar. Um, if I have the vegan sushi, like the cucumber roll or the asparagus roll or the sweet potato roll, will I like it? You got a week. Try it. So for the first week, you're trying out foods and the goal is to identify breakfasts and lunches and dinners that have no animal products that you would actually like. And you make a list and everybody, you know, people don't need seven days to do it. They, they do it faster than that, mm -hmm. but you give them seven days. And then the next step is three weeks. And during that three week period, you eat those foods and everyone says, well, that's easy. So you're going vegan. Now you're throwing out the animal products, but you've already identified the foods that you're going to eat and you do it strictly for three weeks. You don't eat any cheese or meat during that time. And at the end of those three weeks, people will say two things. First of all, I feel so much better. <laughs> I, 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 lost, I lost weight. This is the easiest weight loss. I'm not starving. I'm never hungry like I was on you know, a, weight, a calorie counting diet, but I'm losing weight. And if they got diabetes, their blood sugar is better, their energy is better. 
But the other thing they say is aside from the physical changes, I just look at food differently. I, I thought I was going to really miss mm. chicken and I just, I don't. And I've also discovered there's all these other cool things out there that I didn't know were out there. And they'll say, I found a website and I found a new product at the store. And um, I found about six friends who are doing the same darn thing, wondering where I was all this time. Mm -hmm. So anyway, the, the physical changes and kind of the psychological changes kick in. So, so that's our two-step method. And I, I've never seen anybody unable to do it. And the beauty of doing it fast is that they get results. Um, if they go too slow, they may not get enough results that make them really convinced it's good. Mm -hmm. once, once, once your weight is coming down, you think, yay, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stick with this. It's very motivating. I love yeah, the, it, it is. I love the trial and error period. I feel like so, so many things in life are like that. I like to think about things as experiments. That's how I work with a lot of my clients and patients is let's try this and see what results we get. And let's see again, kind of in a quick time period, because if it's not helping, then we'll know soon, but it's worth just trying. I think that's easier for people to grasp as well. That mindset. One nice thing about the, the three week period um, is since you're not having animal products at all, that allows you to forget a little bit. Mm. Um, and what I mean is, let's say you're, you, if, if a person was ever a smoker, they'll know what I'm talking about. If you got through 21 days without a cigarette, you got some power going for you now. Or if alcohol was your issue. If you got through 21 days, you're feeling like, okay, I'm in a pretty good spot right now. However, if you had had a drink or a cigarette or whatever it is you're trying to get away from, if you had it every couple of days, you're not feeling any power now because mm -hmm. it's still on your shoulder. It's still calling your name pretty <laughs> aggressively. Mm -hmm. Once you get that distance, it's good. So cheese is on your shoulder too. And if you had it yesterday, it's gonna be calling your name today. Um, and, but once you've gotten away from it for about 21 days, you just, you feel differently. So th that's why we're strict about it. it. It allows the brain to forget that, that um, failed relationship <laughs> that you might've had with food where you love the food and it just didn't love you back. That's a great, that's a great, that's a great plan. It sounds like it works really well. And I'm glad you brought up the topic of hormones and working with women around hormones. Cause I'd love to hear you speak more about that as well. Um, recently I've been reading, I don't know if you're familiar with Elisa Vitti's work. She just published a book called in the flow and it's about cycle syncing and women's hormones and what happens at the four different phases of a, a woman during menstrual age cycling and what kind of foods we can use to support it. And she, she doesn't advocate just for a vegan diet. She does advocate for a lot of you know, healthy plant-based organic foods and sustainable meat products. But I'd love to hear your, um, your take and what your research has shown on using different foods during different parts of the cycle even to best support uh, a woman's natural infradian rhythm and cycle. Yeah, it's a fascinating thing. And there are many different approaches. We're all kind of like the blind men and the elephant, you know, mm -hmm. where we're all finding our different pieces. But, but my piece came uh, on the phone. I was sitting here at my desk and a young woman called me up with terrible menstrual pain. And many women have some pain, but for maybe roughly, I'm going to say maybe one in 10, it's just off the scale. I'm not going to go to a business meeting today kind, kind of pain. And mm -hmm. that was her situation. And so she needed painkillers. And so I said, well, I can give you some heavy duty painkillers for a couple of days. But I started thinking, you know, what are we going to do to stop this from happening next month? And so I, I actually used our diabetes diet for her. Hmm. Now, this is going to sound, sound hard to understand at first. It's no animal products at all. It's a completely vegan diet. And we keep oils really low, uh, all, all oils, even olive oil and whatever. 
we keep them to a bare minimum. Um, and she, she tried it. She said, okay, I'll do this. She called me four weeks later and said, this is amazing. Her period arrived, had arrived with no symptoms at all. And so I then did a randomized clinical trial where we brought in a large group of women and we were working with Georgetown University's Department of OBGYN. Mm. And it works. Um, not only did we find that the diet reduces uh, pain, but it also reduced the kind of the prodrome of that, uh, the uh, premenstrual symptoms of bloatiness, uh, uh, bloatedness, uh, moodiness, um, water retention, th th that kind of thing. Um, so bloating, water retention, moodiness, all those things seem to get better. Um, so the question is why? Um, oh, well, actually, let me tell you one other thing, if, if you don't mind. No, um, please do. In, in the course of this study, we were, we were tracking what dietary changes could do for what's obviously a hormonal, hormonal issue. Um, and so we asked all the participants not to use any hormones in the study. So for example, if they uh, were sexually active, we asked them to use something other than the pill mm -hmm. because the hormone that they would take in the pill would confuse our results. And one of the women in the study wasn't using any contraception because she and her husband had been evaluated years earlier for why they couldn't get pregnant. And she said, it's not him, it's me, I, I don't ovulate. The second month that she was in the research study, she came into our center and she said, Dr. Barnard, I've got some bad news and I've got some good news. And the bad news is I am leaving your study. And the good news is I am pregnant. And she couldn't believe that she'd mm. become pregnant like that. And so she gave birth to a healthy baby. And a little while later, she gave birth to a second baby and to a third baby. And here's my point. The first woman, the one who called me on the phone, had a diagnosis of dysmenorrhea, menstrual pain. The second one had a diagnosis of infertility. I would like to take my number two lead pencil and turn it around and just erase those diagnoses and say, wait a minute, what if it's just a question of being out of balance mm -hmm. um, with hormones? Um, and at the risk of being overly verbal <laughs> with all of this stuff, let me just describe why the pain went away. Um, every month in a woman's cycle, the, the uterus is the most optimistic organ in the body. Every single month it's convinced this is gonna be the big one. <laughs> so, um, so your body makes extra estrogen, the female sex hormone, of which there are a few different varieties. There's estradiol and some others. And that comes out of the ovaries, it goes through the bloodstream and it arrives at the inner lining of that uterus. And it thickens it up to make kind of a thick cushion where hopefully there will be an implantation of an embryo. Um, or, or that's the idea. Um, and if, a, here, here's the key. If a woman has too much estrogen in her blood for some reason, that endometrial layer thickens up too much. Mm -hmm. At the end of the month, the disappointed uterus discovers we're not pregnant after all. So it sends that whole thick lining away in menstrual flow. If she had too much estrogen, that overly thickened lining leads to heavier flow, more prolonged flow, more clotting, and more cramps because that thickened lining creates prostaglandins. Mm -hmm. Their job is to, is to stop the, the bleeding, basically. But they cause the whole uterine line, the, the uterus cramps up. And some of the prostaglandins get in your bloodstream and make you feel rotten. And so up until now, doctors say, well, just take uh, ibuprofen. Or let me put you on the pill and da-da-da-da-da. What they're not thinking of is, wait a minute, Somehow you got too much estrogen in your blood. And this is what was going through my mind mm -hmm. when the young woman called me up. I thought, why, does, why would she have extra estrogen? 
And so I, I have to confess, I made just an educated guess. Number one, cows are milked when they're pregnant. Every cow on every dairy is impregnated annually through a rather creepy procedure that I will not describe. Um, a cow's gestation is nine months. Nine months out of 12, they are pregnant. They are making more estrogen, more progesterone. It gets into the milk. And when the milk is turned into cheese, it's concentrated. And your average woman consumes about 35 pounds of cheese mm. every year. It's a plus lot of cheese. Plus yogurt, plus milk, plus butter, plus ice cream, plus all the dairy that's baked into cookies and stuff. So she's getting traces of estrogens. Those estrogens add to your own. They are biologically active in your body. And you could say, well, it's not much. It's enough to actually affect your biochemistry. That's number one. Number two, your body has a way of getting rid of extra estrogens and it requires fiber. And fiber is the roughage in vegetables and beans and fruits and whole grains. Your liver takes the estrogen out of the blood and sends it into the intestinal tract where fiber carries it away. But if you had salmon and chicken breast, they don't have any fiber. And so the estrogen is reabsorbed into your blood through a process called enterohepatic circulation. And as soon as you have a high fiber vegan diet, that stops. You, you get rid of the excess estrogen. And the third thing is for reasons that I cannot understand, but it happens. Fatty foods, even oils, raise estrogen levels a little bit. Hmm. So for the women on the phone, <laughs> I just made this guess. I thought this isn't going to hurt you, but it might help you. Let's throw out all the dairy products. All that estrogen's gone. Throw out all the animal products. Now everything you're eating is high in fiber. Keep oils low. Now your whole diet is really low in fat. And it was her absolute cure. Um, and she discovered later if she would bring in, I mean, you could bring in any of those three. Mm -hmm. Animal products in general, dairy products in particular, greasy stuff, and your, your cramps are going to come back. So anyway, forgive me for that long-winded answer, but, but that's no, I, I loved it. And I have a, f a few follow-up questions because I know the, the talk where I saw you, you spoke a lot about the, the dairy industry as well. And I mentioned, I was curious about if people are using things like sheep dairy or goat dairy or, you know, organic dairy from free range cows, if that makes a difference at all in the estrogen levels. Uh, no, it, it really doesn't. Um, okay. Because the, the idea is it's an animal. Let me just, say a word about this if you don't mind. Mm. Um, I'm a doctor, but I want to talk about the industry and, and I can perhaps be qualified for doing that because my whole family made plenty of money off abusing animals for years. Um, what the farmer does, or I mean, it, this, you can go out to rural Maryland and find a goat farm where the goats are hopping around. Um, they may even have goat you know, yoga on the side and everyone looks all happy and healthy. What they're not going to show you is, is how they impregnate the animals. And this is true for, for every, everything. Mm. Um, on a dairy farm where, where the cows are, they, um, the underpaid farm worker takes his left hand and puts a glove all the way up to his shoulder and he sticks it up the cow's rectum, up to his elbow, and through the rectal wall you can feel the uterus and you can grab it. And that's what they do. And then you take your right hand and you jam through the cervix what looks like a big, long knitting needle, mm. and you insert semen that you took from a bull. And these animals aren't volunteers, but they're not going to fight because, I mean, mm. she's chained up. Mm -hmm. And she didn't ask to get impregnated, but she did. And then um, nine months later, she's going to give birth to a calf. And the calf is going to be taken away from her because we want the milk. And if the calf is male, the calf will be killed for a veal. The female will be isolated from mom. And she's not going to like that at all. And her mother's not going to like it. But 
um, a few years later, she'll have her opportunity to get impregnated too. And this goes over and over again every year till about she's about four. At about age four, they're all just killed for meat uh, yeah. because their production is low. So anyway, I mention that because frankly, for a lot of people, it's so creepy. It is it, creepy. It, it motivates them to think maybe it's not this wonderful thing. Mm -hmm. And go to a goat farm where they say, you know, it's healthy, happy, organic goats. Ask them, what do they do with the kids? Mm. What do they do with the kids? And they'll say, um, have, you, have you seen our garden? And you say, no, what happens to, to the baby, to the baby uh, goats around here? And they'll say, um, why don't you buy a book in our gift shop? They, they don't want to talk to you about the fact that they kill them all. You know, they let them do goat yoga until they're big enough to hurt you, and then they're all dead. Mm. Um, and, oh, anyway, but, but back to your question. Health-wise, what's the difference? Goat milk is worse. Mm. Sheep milk is worse. The, the reason they were popular is because they were deemed to be smaller operations that weren't mm -hmm. so industrial. Mm -hmm. and, and because in some cases, their saturated fat intake is even higher. So it was a more buttery kind of a flavor. And that was the idea. It wasn't a health reason. Um, and and they're, they're pregnant too. So they're producing the same estrogens. Interesting. I'm glad you clarified that. I'm curious too about high levels of estrogen in, in some soy-based products. And if that was factored into any of the studies you did or to this randomized controlled trial, if people were using high amounts of any kind of soy products, because I see that a lot with the vegan diet. And I wanted to ask your opinion on that as well as is people using products that are very processed and also that are high in soy and how that yeah. has shown up in the research or what your advice is for people that are following this diet. Um, soy has been a really interesting um, issue. Um, back, I think it was 1931, the researchers discovered compounds in soy that are called isoflavones. Mm. And uh, they, they have a chemical structure vaguely similar to estrogens. And in test tube studies, you can actually attach them to an estrogen receptor. And so that got people nervous. And the first question that they thought was for men, that maybe soy would cause men to um, either become effeminate or infertile mm. or to develop what is um, unfortunately on the internet referred to as man boobs. Mm -hmm. um, not my word, but their word. Um, and then the bigger question was, would women get breast cancer um, if they ate soy? Or if a woman had cancer already, if she consumed soy, would it cause the cancer to progress? So luckily we've got a lot of data on all of those issues. Uh, regarding man boobs, um, you can investigate this yourself by going to the beach in August. And if you see a heavyset guy who's just taken his shirt off and he has some breast augmentation, you might go up and ask him, how much tofu have you eaten this past <laughs> week? Um, and he will look at you like, what are you talking about? And you could ask him about edamame or miso or tempeh. And you will soon discover that neither he nor any of his friends eat any of those foods at all. And the reason that he got breast enhancement is because he's eating cheeseburgers and pizza and chicken wings and fattening foods and body fat produces estrogens. Fat cells take testosterone and convert it into estrogens and that goes to his breast area and is producing breast, uh, breast tissue. Hmm. So it has, soy is, has nothing to do with it. Um, regarding women and breast cancer, we have many studies on this now and they're quite uniform that women consuming the most soy, and when I say soy, I mean soy milk, uh, tofu, tempeh, miso, whether they're um, um, uh, fermented product like, mm -hmm. like uh, miso or tempeh or unfermented like soy milk. In, in either case, the women consuming the most soy have about 30% less risk of breast cancer. 
compared to women who avoid mm -hmm. soy. So soy is a cancer preventive. And then for women who have been diagnosed with cancer in the past, breast cancer, um, if they consume the most soy, those groups consuming the most have a, also about roughly a 30% reduced risk hmm. of recurrence or mortality. And for men, it's about the same, roughly same 30% improvement for prostate cancer risk. And so you go back to the beginning, you say, well, wait a minute, soy isoflavones attached to estrogen receptors. Mm -hmm. What's going on here? How can, how can it reduce cancer risk? And the answer is, by analogy, uh, on the floor of your car, you've got a, a pedal. It's a gas pedal. You step on it and your car accelerates. But right next to it is another pedal, which is the brake. And if you step on that, your car stops. And you have, on, in your body, you have alpha receptors, you have beta receptors. Soy has now been shown to be the brake. So we've done a, well, I wouldn't say we've done a 180 because frankly, most scientists never believed that soy caused cancer anyway, but there's a lot of urban mythology about it. Um, it's now quite clear that the women who avoid soy because their ill-informed oncologist told them that they shouldn't have soy, those women are condemned to about a 30% higher mortality. Hmm. So you, you don't have to have soy. It's totally optional, but it does not cause these problems. And if anything, it's actually quite beneficial and a whole lot more beneficial than what you are what you might have eaten instead. Right. If you're going to eat a chicken wing or something, you're way better off with the soy. With the soy product. Yeah, isn't that surprising? It's good information, and it's nice that the research was uniform, as you said, that it's hard to argue with. Yeah, um, we have a good meta-analysis going back to 2004. It was mm -hmm. the first one, uh, at least that I remember seeing from about, uh, they took about eight studies and combined them. But then about a decade after that, we have just dozens of studies. Um, and now the literature is quite convincing, but, but, we, but we have a problem that, that you and I both deal with, which, and all the viewers deal with too, which is the internet is filled with um, all kinds of noise out there. Yes, it uh, is. When you look at the scientific studies, they're pretty clear. That's great, and that's what we want. I think that, that's what will drive us forward. I'm curious just what your opinion is on the popularization of fake meat products in various fast food chains. It's becoming a bit of a trend. And if you think this is a good thing for people trying stuff like the Impossible Burger, I know in the vegan community, my brother was telling me, me this, there's some, some disrest or some struggle where people think maybe this isn't a good thing because it's not a true representation of the vegan diet if people think they can go eat an Impossible Burger with cheese and it's somehow you know, healthy. Um, I know, I think Subway has a, a meatless meatball sub now. Just curious what your, what your thoughts are on these products becoming more available in the, in the marketplace and in a, in a fast food presentation. They are methadone. Um, right? <laughs> That's a great analogy. Um, what I mean is if you are hooked on meat and um, a Whopper is your idea of heaven, then going and having the impossible Whopper, that's your methadone. Mm. But um, it will help you to see that you can actually have a life without beef. But um, it is a transition to hopefully not having that either. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, and, and the reason I say that is the, the good thing about something like the Impossible Burger is it doesn't have any cholesterol in it. Um, it doesn't have any uh, estrogens in it, but you know, to, to make it taste like a meat burger, they have to pump it full of a vegan source of saturated fat, just like the saturated fat that came out of a cow. So its effect on your cholesterol is not going to be dramatically better mm -hmm. um, than the meat burger, but you know, it's, it's marginally better in some ways. 
um, it's, it's less likely to cause colorectal cancer probably. Um, and, and of course there are many veggie burgers that are much lower in fat than an impossible burger and that frankly would be good choices all the time. But the impossible burger is designed specifically not for vegans, it's designed for meat eaters. Mm -hmm. So they can see, you know, okay, this is all right. And then hopefully they'll, from there, test out other kinds of foods. I like the, the methadone analogy. I think that's a good one. Yeah. And then I mentioned this to you before we started recording that I work frequently with sober women and my audience is comprised of many women who have been sober for a while. And I know a lot of times after the early phases of recovery, when people become more stable with, okay, I'm not drinking and I, I have a new lifestyle, dietary changes come into play. Right. And, you know, women and all of us really, men, men as well, want to start making new changes. And as you touched on before, it's hard to know because there's so much information. Um, and I like the plan that you laid out, but I'm curious what you would advise for anyone who's in this transitional period of no longer using alcohol, but wants to make dietary changes, but doing too much too fast is, you know, can be detrimental and maybe spin back to wanting the alcohol use again. If you have any thoughts on that. Everybody, yeah, I, I don't mean to speak for anybody or just to put my values on them. I think people find their own path, but just maybe a, an observation um, to offer. And, and that's that um, for many people, if alcohol, if alcohol is destroying your life, let's deal with that. Mm. Um, and when you're at a place where you want to rethink what you're eating, let's deal with that. Um, everyone does it in their own way. Um, and if a person makes any change, that's a good thing. Um, at some point, it's nice to jump in the deep end with the way that the two-step method that I mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. And I'd encourage everybody to do that at some point. And you will suddenly start making an analogy in your, in, in your own mind. You'll say, this is just like when I had to break up with mm. whatever that other substance was. And you are gonna, you're going to look at your partner's friends and you're going to say, I think cheese is addicting. Um, and it is. Um, and to your surprise, uh, cheese actually does have narcotics in it. Um, they're called casomorphins. They come from the casein protein, the dairy protein. They're, they're not as strong as, as, as morphine, but, but they, the, the strongest is called morphoceptin. It's in milk, but especially concentrated in cheese, and it goes to the brain and attaches mm. to the very same receptor that, that uh, heroin attaches to, That's which is why people have this love affair with cheese mm. that they can't break up with. Um, the, the other thing, though, is I encourage people to do a low-fat vegan diet wherever they are. And one advantage of that is, let's say, and I'm not speaking for anybody else, but let's say for me, I broke up with cigarettes, narcotics, pills, alcohol, whatever the hell the devil is. And I'm not using that anymore, but I find myself substituting overeating. Mm -hmm. I think, ah, oh, damn it, now I'm gaining weight, and what the hell, I mean, uh, but I kind of exactly. need this now, or, or now I feel like I'm sugar addicted. What am I gonna do? Um, when a person decides I'm gonna have vegetables and fruits and whole grains and beans and all the stuff that they produce. Now, everything you're eating has fiber in it and fiber doesn't have any calories. So you fill up on these foods and you're not hungry anymore, but you're, it's a great way to prevent weight gain. Um, and one last thought, if you don't mind. Sure. Um, in one of our diabetes studies that we did here, many of our participants started talking about foods in really kind of addictive terms, um, like um, life is not worth living without mm. you name it. Uh, cheese was the biggest one. So I stuck a needle in everybody's arm and I sent blood samples to our colleagues at Stanford. 
and we blood typed everybody, or, uh, we genotyped everybody. What I was looking for was a gene that causes the brain to have too few dopamine receptors. Mm -hmm. And as you know, every drug of abuse stimulates dopamine, the pleasure chemical. If it didn't, you wouldn't use it. Um, and that's true for everything from caffeine to cigarettes to heroin um, and everything in between. Um, they stimulate dopamine. What I found is that about half of our research participants with type 2 diabetes, about half of people with type 2 diabetes, have a gene that causes them to have too few dopamine receptors. So the brain releases a little dopamine, and before it finds a receptor to attach to and to stimulate a feel-good response, the dopamine evaporates, it's gone. So they're having to stimulate it more and more and more. And so that leads them to drug abuse, to gambling, to compulsive overeating, mm -hmm. to any way to drive dopamine. You're not aware that you're doing this, but you feel that compulsive compulsion. Mm -hmm. So the gene's not going away. What it means is that I'm kind of set up for things that are gonna hurt me. And if that's the case, if, if I've made a rule that everything I'm gonna eat is, is vegan, then what I discover is that these are foods that even if I overdo it, they just don't have that addictive potential and they're, and they're not gonna hurt me if I overeat a little bit. And it doesn't mean they're gonna be un, uh, unpleasant foods, they're great. Mm -hmm. You know, instead of the cheesy, meaty taco, I'll have the bean burrito with jalapenos and a spicy sauce. And, um, you know, I can have Chinese food. It's not gonna be the fried chicken wings, but it'll be the rice dishes and vegetable dishes and tofu dishes and whatever. And I discovered that these foods give me a little bit of protection. Um, they're less likely to cause weight gain. They're more likely to even cause weight loss and make my health problems get better. So um, what I meant to really say is that some people are kind of a little extra vulnerable mm -hmm. and that these, food, these foods really are the ones that love you back. That's wonderful. I'm, I'm curious too, if there's a way to front load that, if we know people have this gene, if there's a way to stimulate more dopamine production through things like exercise or, you know, other activities that are going to naturally stimulate dopamine, if we could approach it that way as well, along with the, with the, the good supportive high fibrous foods. You know, at McGill University, people bring people in and they, they, there are certain techniques of brain scanning mm -hmm. where you could see dopamine activity. And when you get people talking, they get a little bit of dopamine activity. When they talk about themselves, they get some dopamine activity. When they exercise, they do this. Um, so let's say I'm in an AA meeting. What am I doing? I'm with other people. That causes a little dopamine squirt mm -hmm. in my brain. And I'm talking about my experience. And I, you know, this is not just chit chat. This is actually changing brain chemistry in a second by second way. So that when you leave that meeting, you are in a better position than you were if you were sitting at home alone. Um, so um, the things that you mentioned, lacing up your sneakers and getting out in the air, get sunlight um, on you, go with somebody else. Today, I guess you gotta be six feet apart, I don't know, but go, <laughs> out, go out there and, you know, and get your heart beating a little bit. There's a natural antidepressant in physical exercise. Um, talk with other people, even if it's online or on your phone, talk with other people hook up with people in whatever way you can. Those people, those things will give you dopamine in a good natural way. That's wonderful. And we have those so readily available to us. I think it's really important to remember that and to continue to stress that we do have power to control these things that aren't detrimental to us. Yeah, you know, in, in our research meetings here, 
um, we go around the room and everybody talks about what they're doing. And some people complain. They'll say, oh, you know, this is just idle chit chat. Why are we doing this? And I have to say, well, this is really for two reasons. Um, the first reason is I want everybody to have a chance to identify their stumbling block. Something's getting in your way. Mm -hmm. um, the reason I couldn't stay on the straight and narrow is because I was traveling. Or I'm at a wedding and I know there's going to be all kinds of food and there's going to be toasts and, and everything. So what am I going to do? Um, I, I, I want the group to then talk together and solve those problems. And by, by talking together as a group, we not only solve the problems that we are facing individually, but we have this natural communal experience, which whether we like it or not, this great ape we call the human being actually needs the presence of other people. Um, in our lives to or, or to, to feel that presence, whether it's virtual or in person, you need that in order to feel uh, psychologically stable to a degree. Now, people can be irritating. There are times when you need, <laughs> you need your personal space. Um, we are certainly an imperfect species. Um, however, um, that, that connection is part of our mental stability too. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's, this is a great place to close because I think that's very important for everyone to remember in this time when we are a bit more socially isolated and some of us are quarantining that we have this wonderful worldwide web and we can continue to connect with people even if it is at a six foot distance or, you know, from across the country. Right. So I'm glad you brought that up. Thank you so much for being here with me today. Is there anything else you'd like to say to the audience or any projects that you'd like to let people know you have going on or are currently available? Um, let me show you this book, if you don't mind. Please um, do. Just came out. Sorry. Um, it's called Your Body in Balance. And this is about what we we're talking about, whether it's um, menstrual cramps or endometriosis or PCOS or infertility or hormone-related cancers. We also talk about thyroid disease and diabetes. And it talks all about food. And I'm hoping that people will have a look and share it with somebody who's struggling a little bit with these things. Because people know that food causes health issues. What they didn't know is that quite often, if you choose the right foods, your hormones can get back in balance. Mm -hmm. Whether it's estrogen and testosterone <clears throat> or thyroid hormone or insulin. And when you control your hormones, you've got real power. So Absolutely. Have at it. I love that. Thank you so much. Sure. Thank you.